0: All right, you can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you just have a phone, you can go Exodus 19 NIV uh, in your phone. It'll pop right up, I hope. Uh, we, we've been going through the story of the Bible, and we're answering the question, what is the Bible about? Is it you know, a bunch of moralistic stories which we are just kind of thrown together, and we're supposed to follow the example of people? Or is it one story? And so we looked at the first two chapters of Genesis because that's where the story begins, as everyone, I think, would know if you open the beginning of a book. And here we have this creation. And God creates the universe, creates the world, creates man. Creation is called good. Man is called very good. And yet it's incomplete because man doesn't have anyone to be in relationship with. And so he creates woman. And God uh, and man are in fellowship with one another, enjoying one another. Uh, Man and woman are enjoying one another. But we know from experience that it's not like that. In life. And so, Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into the world, Eve is deceived, Adam stands by, and the world unravels. And out of that, God promises things, and He promises blessings and promises curses. And one of the uh, promises is that a child will come and it will crush the head of the serpent as the serpent wounds the person doing the crushing. And so you have next generation, we've got murder uh, on, on earth, and then we've got, you know, kind of the whole thing falls apart, the world gets destroyed again, we restart again, and things fall apart again, and then in Genesis 11, you've got the Tower of Babel, they're building a temple to God, God confuses them with languages, out they go, and then at the end of chapter 11, we're introduced to Abraham. Abraham is the kind of the anchor in Genesis, and honestly, if you read the Bible, Abraham is the anchor. He's mentioned 74 times in the New Testament. It might be 76, just one of those two. He's mentioned, I'll go with 76. He's mentioned 76 times in the New Testament. He's important if you read just the Gospels or Galatians or Romans or all these New Testament letters, it's Abraham, 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 Abraham. And he gets promised things. He gets promised his name will be great. He will be given land. He will uh, have a child that will turn into a nation. And then this nation will bless the world. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham and he swears on himself in Genesis 15 that it will happen no matter what. And he will take on the curses of this covenant in case Abraham doesn't fulfill it. We know Abraham and his descendants don't. So. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has some sons. One of those sons is Joseph, who the brothers hate, and those brothers sell Joseph into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He rises to power, if you know the story. He rescues Egypt in the midst of a famine. Here come the brothers years later. They don't recognize him, asking for help. Eventually, Joseph tells them who they are, who he is. They think he's going to kill them. I mean, why not? You slave, sold me into slavery and left me for dead. They end up being reconciled, God's people end up staying in Egypt, and now 400 years have passed, and God's people uh, at the end of Genesis have grown numerous, so numerous that the Egyptians enslaved them. Along comes a man named Moses. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house, he flees after an incident, he gets married, he has kids, and then at the age of 80, so if you ever watch Prince of Egypt and it's little young Moses running around, false. False. At the age of 80, he comes back and he leads the people out of Egypt. So we come to this section of scripture now that people call the law. And I'll be honest, uh, that word is, if you've been raised in a church or in a Christian setting, the word the law is the boogeyman. The law is the thing that you skip over when you do your Bible reading Maybe we say, wow, the law is way too restrictive. We need to be a religion about love, or we do the opposite. We try to obey all the laws and then we pump ourselves up in obedience and say, wow, look at me, I do these and that person, that one's not doing this. We call them legalistic. If we try to follow them, we call them narrow. We call them bigoted. We call them outdated. And then, genuinely, if you're a Christian, Uh, You ask yourself things like, well, does this apply to me? And does this apply to me? Does this not apply to me? I'm not a Jew, so does this matter in some sense? And should we have the Ten Commandments apply to our nation? Which law should apply to a nation? And so on and on we go. And then just on a personal note, when I first became a Christian, I would look for a teacher to try to explain away this this section of Scripture to be like, this doesn't apply anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? That you read Exodus, I mean, it's, it sounds like sacrilegious, your pastor just said that from the pulpit, but this was my honest attitude, I'm a brand new believer, and they're like, read through the Bible, and you get to Exodus 19 and following, you're like, what is this? And I want to eradicate that attitude, the attitude of, it can't possibly mean that, the attitude of, when I get the parts of the Bible I don't like, it means I don't have to follow it. You know, we come to the Bible, you can have two attitudes. Uh, I read it, I believe it, therefore it's true, and I have to do something about it, Or, which is the right attitude. Or it's, I don't really like this, so I'm going to kind of throw it off. Who cares if it's true or not? Just to give you an example of, of, of how this works out practically, there's a professor uh, of English at Texas A&M. She assigned the Sermon on the Mount to her, eight, her freshman English literature class. At Texas A&M, late 1980s, Virginia Owens says this. Most of the students were from middle-class, conservative, Republican pa- families. Their vices were the traditional ones, drunkenness and sexual promiscuity on the weekends. I expected them to have some sort of nodding acquaintance of the Sermon on the Mount. Who reads Matthew 5-7? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, you know, on and on. The first paper I picked up, though, opened with these words. In my opinion, religion is a big hoax. She, she writes, I found that mildly surprising because this person hadn't had an opinion about anything in my class until this moment. Next paper, there's an old saying, you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. She begins to ask, why are they so angry? Why are they so dismissive? Next paper, the stuff that the church preaches is extremely strict and allows for no fun without thinking it's sin. Next paper, I do not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and make me feel like I was, needed to be perfect, and no one's perfect. Next paper, the things asked for the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery, that's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I have ever heard. She concludes by saying she felt somewhat relief of how innocent people felt in calling Jesus stupid. She writes at the end, this is not intellectual agnosticism. Like, you know, this is arguments against whether it's true or not. This is just hedonism. I don't like it. Therefore, it's not true. And that's the point Here comes Exodus 19. God is going to thunder down his law from the mountain, and we are a people that do not like to be told what to do. Our ethics are primarily survival-based. It's primarily to make sure people like us. We go with our gut. Now, there are some misconceptions about the law and this is a longer introduction, but I'm in charge, so we're just going to do this. I, I, I just want to tell you some misconceptions. And if you are a seeker or a brand-new believer, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm going to just show you how people misconceive the law. So you don't make the mistake I did for like 10 years. Okay, misconception one. God never expected ancient Israel to be able to follow the law. That's false. Listen, Deuteronomy 30. What I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up to heaven, so you have to ask who will ascend heaven to get it and proclaim it so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea, so you have to ask who will cross the sea to proclaim it to us, to obey it. No, the word is near to you. It is in your mouth and, so this is pre-New Testament now, in your heart so you may obey it. In other words, God expected them fully to obey it and that it wasn't too hard. Number two, no one was ever successful in being blameless and following the law. No, actually, people were blameless. Here's two. Here's the New Testament. In the time of Herod the king, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's command and the decrees blamelessly. That's interesting. Interesting. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, as to following the law, blameless. Misconception number three, the law is only a set of rules. There's no grace in the laws. It's only you have to follow these rules. It's very uh, Lutheran, and all my Lutheran friends, you're wrong. Uh, the law, I'm my two college roommates were Lutherans. They're going to watch this. It's okay. The law is only a set of rules and does not call for genuine heart devotion, right? The law condemns you. The law is about rules, and Jesus is about grace. That's wrong. Just hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. What's What's the summary of all the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your heart, heart devotion, and then the last one, there is no grace in the law. And I'll show you that now in Exodus 19. So Exodus 19, Moses goes up and down the mountain seven times in this section. This is the second covenant of the Bible. He makes a, co- well, there's many more, but I'm just going to say this is the second because it fits better. Okay. A- Make a covenant with Abraham. That's a overarching umbrella covenant. Here we come, a, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with a nation, and Some, in the New Testament, it's called the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, we have the New Covenant. Some people call it the Mosaic Covenant. And it's five chapters here, Exodus 19 to Exodus 24. Now, if someone was preaching this verse by verse and didn't have a 10-minute introduction, this, maybe you could get through it in 10 or 12 weeks. So this is just gonna be a gloss. I just wanna show you that the law is given to a redeemed community to show what God loves and how to live as an alternative community in the world. So the law is given to a redeemed community. That's super important to show what God loves and how to live as an alternative community to the world. Okay, let's go. Exodus 19:1 and 2, God takes them out in the desert. So let me give you context. This is 50 days after the first Passover. You know the story, blood on the wall. What happens after all this? They escape, they go through the Red Sea. God lays a beat down on the Egyptians for trying to kill his people. God says, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. Now here's the thing. Mount Sinai, where they're at, is actually farther away from the promised land than Egypt is. He leads them east and south, and the promised land is east and north. They're now in a desert they're now in a place that is way worse than Egypt and nowhere near the promised land. And that is the pattern of the Bible. God tells you where you are going and he doesn't tell you when or how. God's destination is secure for your life. The road is not. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. You come to Christ. You experience the blessing of knowing Christ and and it doesn't get better; it gets worse, and worse, and worse. And then you have a moment, and then it's worse again. I don't know if you remember when uh, GPS first came out and TomTom Tom GPS. You know, remember the things that were this big? And then when Apple Maps came out, and you punched in the destination, what happened? You were going to go down roads that were closed. You were going to, I remember when Apple Maps came out and people were posting pictures, here's where Apple Maps took me, and you're like hanging off a cliff. You know, it's like the famous scene from the TV show The Office. They're following the GPS, it goes right into the lake. Hilarious scene. You know, they, that's what the pattern is in the the Bible. God says, here's the destination, you're going to have the promised land, uh, but you're going into the desert. That's the setup, Exodus 19, 1 and 2. Sometimes God takes you in a different route. All right. Now he repeats the pattern of salvation, 19, 3 through 6, when Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell Israel. You yourselves have seen what I have done in Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then all the nations, uh, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured. Possession. All the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and holy nations. These are the words you speak. So I'm gonna solve how you relate to the law right here for the rest of your life. You're welcome. There are three, there's a sequence here that you need to remember for the rest of your life because it is the Christian faith and it's the way to put the law in context. The pattern is the saving act of God the response of obedience, and the blessing that comes with obedience. The saving acts of God, the response of obedience, and the blessing of obedience. This is the pattern. I was reading one commentator this this week that said nothing, better make sure I get this right, nothing should ever upset this order. Verse 4 is past tense. Verse 5 and 6 are future tense. Salvation has been done They are already sons and daughters. That's what Exodus 6, 6, and 7 say. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. In other words, God does not give the Ten Commandments, the rules for the tabernacle, and the priests, and the boundaries of how relationships work, and then say, if you do all that, I will save you. What it says is, I have saved you, and now here is what I delight in. Look at verse 4. Look at how the Israelites contributed to their salvation. You yourself have seen what I did in Egypt, what I did in Egypt, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Listen, have you ever seen an eagle swoop down and just crush a fish or a gopher and a rabbit? And you respond and go, man, that fish really knows how to fly. Have you ever looked at the Gopher and been like, "He's doing it. No. No. That's the image. God comes down as an eagle and swoops up and carries them. Look at the end of the verse. "I brought you to myself." That's the book of Exodus. Exodus 1 through 18 is this line right here, "I, I carried you on eagle wings. I brought you to myself. God is." initiating, God is beckoning, God is calling. And and if you get this order wrong, you you mess up the entire Christian faith. I I mean, I can't tell you how many conversions of people in this room are are not, uh, I was really serious about God and then he saved me. It's always, I was not doing anything and all of a sudden he saved me. You know, some of you will know this story because I posted it on social media this week after my daughter said, Dad, fix the grammar, or it's not, you get, before you put it on Facebook. So, but I'm going to share it again because it's such a good one. Uh, so, I'm driving back from Minneapolis this week, and you know, once you get out of Minnesota, there's nothing <laughs> until Billings. Uh, sorry for you from Glendive, but there's nothing out there, okay? <laughs> and I'm driving, and I say, I'm going to stop in Jamestown, North Dakota, which I've never stopped in, and in Jamestown, there's nothing, okay? I arrive at my hotel and classic Darren moment, I show him my reservation, it's for next Wednesday. (laughs) And uh, they say, okay, no rooms. So I just get online, boop, click, uh, find the next hotel, drag myself back to the truck, drive over there, and I walk in, it's a dump. And uh, the guy at the desk has an ESV study Bible behind him. And I say, hey, me being me and exhausted, why do you have that study Bible? And he said, oh, It's for religious purposes. I was like, okay, the lingo's wrong here. Uh, (laughs) What do you mean? Well, I'm trying to understand what my Christian friends believe so I can prove them wrong because it's all ridiculous. Oh, this is so interesting. Uh, I said, you know what's so funny is I was just with the people who put that ESV study Bible together. And he just goes, white. And he goes, uh, what is happening? He starts asking me. And so me being me i i start going back and forth with him and he's like why are churches so focused first question why are churches so focused on politics and woke and trump and all this stuff i said not my church but okay you know right (laughs) okay (laughs) hope he's not watching we go into the resurrection and ancient manuscripts and it's 10 o'clock 11 o'clock at night just driven nine hours and I said, give me your best reason for not believing the resurrection. He goes, because it's ridiculous. And I said, oh, I'm going to give you my best three for believing the resurrection. And so we're back and forth. And at the end, he is totally messed up. <laughs> he is like, what is happening? Why are you here? I said, I know why I'm here. I got the wrong room in God's timing. And God's reinforcing to you how badly he wants you to know him. He made me come here. He made that ESV Bible study right there. You've got 15 minutes left of work and you're done. I barely made it here. Thank God for Priceline or whatever (laughs) it was. Listen, God is after people and it's all grace. Even the people were like, I'm gonna prove you wrong by getting an ESV study Bible. What a joke. God is gonna save Sean. (laughs) Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you or chose you because you were numerous or the few, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, that's to Abraham, he swore to your forefathers. In other words, the Lord loves you because he loves you. The saving act is first. I'll show it to you again. Here's Exodus 20. So here come the 10 commandments, right? It's gonna be obedience. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There it is again. So God brings them into relationship with himself, and then he says, verse 5 and 6, now if you obey my covenant fully, then you will be my treasured possession. Though the whole earth is mine, you'll be the kingdom of priests, you'll be a holy nation. There it is. So you'll be my treasure. What is that? Well, in the, in the ancient Near East, and really anywhere there's a monarchy, the king theoretically owned everything. So what does it mean to be the treasured possession of the king? That means not he owns everything, but he has things in his room that he particularly loves, and he treasures those. That's what the image is. Will be his treasured possession. Will be the things he thinks about. Will be the picture he looks at. Will be the thing he remembers. Will be a kingdom of priests. Priests are mediators. And so, yes, there are priests within Israel, but as the nation as a whole, are, they're, they're priests as well. To To who? Well, to God, they have access to God through tabernacle and temple and worship, but also to the nations. They're priests to the nations. And then, holy nation, God is shaping them, not as individuals, but as a community distinct so that when the nations are blessed because of Abraham's promise, this is a group of people that are an alternative community that acts out their community in a way God loves and delights. Let me just add one more thing before we keep going. The Israelites in verse eight say they will keep the covenant before they're told what it is. (laughs) Uh, You know, like signing the, I'll sign it. What's on it? I find that wild that they're saying, we've seen the saving acts of God. We've seen what he's done in Egypt. It was kind of a big deal. We walked through the Red Sea. Now we're looking at the mountain. We're about to look at a mountain that's gonna break in half I have no idea what's coming, we'll sign. That's the Apostle Paul's conversion. The Apostle Paul asked the Lord, what would you have me do? And the Lord says back to him, I'll tell you, later. (laughs) Imagine a conversion to Christ like that. A conversion to Christ that goes, I know you're the Christ, I know you resurrected from the dead, I have no idea what you demand of my life, but I trust you. That's conversion. Because then, when you see all the demands of Christ, you just go, okay, okay, okay. Well, that sounds hard, but okay, okay. You see the difference? God doesn't come to them with the 10 commandments and say, now I'll save you. He comes to them and says, trust me. And now live in obedience. All right, so now God shows up. So God saves, our obedience, blessing. Write that on your heart. Now God shows up. Look at all this 10 through 22. Uh, fire, smoke, thunder, trumpet. The mountain is shaking. I mean, what is that? You, you read, just, just in your you know, free time, go look up passages when God kind of confronts someone. I mean, sometimes he shows up as a wrestler. Sometimes he shows up as a man of war. Okay, but in the book of Job, how does he uh, show up as? A hurricane? When he shows up to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, totally undone. Sees the Lord blabbering out of his mouth. Isaiah, totally undone. Every single response is, lay on the floor, get as low as possible, because his presence is now pushing down on me. And this is verse nine now of Exodus 19. All the people in the camp trembled. You think, you imagine if like this thing happened in the mountains down there and we were at the foot of them and all of a sudden the Spanish peaks were shaking, enveloped in smoke. There was a cloud, there was fire, there was lightning. We'd be like, huh, no. We have a word for this. This word is holy in the garden of Eden. It takes one bite of forbidden fruit. One bite. Sin enters the world. One. Genesis 19, Lot's wife turns the salt, pillar of salt, because she just didn't do what God asked and looked back. Book of Numbers, man is collecting sticks on the Sabbath, told not to do that. People of God bring him up, say, what should we do, God? God says, stone him. Here in Exodus 19, they have to prepare to be close. I mean, imagine the terror. This is three days. You're parents of kids, right? Some of you. What, what do you do with those kids who just won't stop running around? And God says, if anything touches the mountain, they'll die. You're locking them down. You're a shepherd. You have sheep. Your whole livelihood is animals. And God says, anything touches that mountain, they're dead. Because I'm holy. Do you find that Harsh my guess is yes, hmm? if you're honest. I th- I think we think it's harsh for two reasons. One, we overestimate ourselves. We, uh, we tend to look at our imperfections casually, or we look at them therapeutically, weaknesses or tendencies. Listen, most people, including Christians, including probably all of us in this room, we look in the mirror and we try to give ourselves a pep talk about how, how good we are and kind we are and we're, we're generally a good person. And so we come to Christ. We're not so much sinners and rebels in need of salvation. We are sort of okay people in need of direction hmm? or uh, to pe- people that aren't too bad in need of purpose. You ever Have you ever heard the gospel presented to you as God needs to give you purpose in your life? That's not the gospel. That's not Exodus 19. That's not the Bible. I mean, yes, we can be all these things that that come out of us, but in the end, at our core, guilty rebels. That's why Christ comes. I remember hearing an analogy uh, from another pastor, so this is totally stealing, um, but I don't care. I told you. Imagine you're kicking a wall, and you kick it over and over again. I mean, you'll hurt yourself, but it's a sin of frustration, right? No real punishment, kind of minor infraction. Now, what if you're in Bozeman and you kick a dog? Uh, Not yours, Uh, someone else's. Well, people are going to be mad at you. Things might happen. Uh, Still not jail time yet. But what if you kick a woman in a grocery line? Punishments start to move up, right? You know you shouldn't do that. You're probably going to jail. Who cares if you've had a bad day? Now, what if you walk into Buckingham Palace and kick the king? Those guys with fuzzy hats are now going to come and smack you. You're probably going to end up in jail. What if you kick the Lord? What does harsh mean? Is there something too harsh for that? So we, have a, we overestimate ourselves. I mean, look, if, if we could really see who we really are, I think all of us would collapse into ourselves, right? And that's what the law is supposed to do in some sense. It's supposed to expose us for who we really are so that when we read it, we go, wow, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. Exposure. But it's also a small view of God, it's a tame God. It's a God who's like a grandfather who rocks in his rocking chair and puts us up on his lap sometimes. I remember reading one of Einstein's students once, don't ask me why, but I have this from somewhere. He wrote about Einstein. The design of the universe was so magnificent. Magnificent. In fact, I believe Einstein had uh, such a hard problem with organized religion and little use for it because he would look up at the preacher and it would feel like they were blaspheming God. He had seen more majesty in all the creation and the universe, and they felt that God, he felt like the God that they were talking about must could not have been the real thing. My guess is he simply felt the churches he would come across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. What does Isaiah say in Isaiah 40? Lift up your eyes to the heavens who created all these things, who brought out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and strength. None of them is missing. Do you see what that means? You take all this, you look up at night on a black night when there's no light and you look at every single one of them and you go, God named that one and he names this one and he names this one. And he looks at them and he goes, I measure them about like this. Now, we think one light year is 5.8 trillion miles. The observable universe is 93 billion light years. The Milky Way is 100,000 light years. I know I'm way over my head, but I can do a little bit of math. And God takes the trillions and trillions of miles of the universe and goes about like that. And that God now comes down on a mountain on earth of course they're trembling. And so you get the Ten Commandments. You get laws about slavery and bodily injury and liability and homicide and ownership and social laws and religious laws. not going to go into them all. Let's just take the Ten Commandments. We read them as prohibitions. But they're not meant as a negative. They're meant to be a, a freeing kind of prohibition in order for you to delight in what God delights. He has already rescued them out of slavery. He's not trying to enslave them by telling them what he loves. Two tablets are made. They're identical. They're not identical because they need two copies. In the ancient Near East, a king would get a copy and servants would get a copy. And the Israelites keep both copies as if to say, the king is here. We don't have to give a copy to the king. So you give it the law... So now we fast forward. Exodus 24, you can just turn over a couple pages. Here's the end of it. Verse 7, they tell the Lord they'll do it. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people and they responded, they should not have done this. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Of course, God knows that doesn't happen. In fact, within 40 days, this whole thing is blown up. They're breaking the covenant. Moses throws the... Tablets on the ground. This is ridiculous. You've broken the covenant. And then he goes back up to God, Exodus 34. He says, God, show me yourself. And what does God do? As he passed in front of Moses, Exodus 34, what does he say? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faith and loving kindness, maintaining his love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished punishes the children and their children of the parents of the third and fourth generation. If you got questions about that last thing, come and talk to me. It's not what probably what you think. Two, Moses then sprinkles blood on the altar and on them to bind them. So verse six, he sprinkles it on the altar. And then verse eight, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. This is the blood of the covenant. Remember these words, they might sound familiar to you if you know the New Testament that the Lord has made in accordance with these words. So he sprinkles it on the altar as if to say, God has to be satisfied and God provides a substitutionary death on the behalf of the people. And he sprinkles it on the people as if to say, you are now taking on the curses yourself. If you don't do it, your blood will be shed. And then they eat. Verse nine, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders went up and they saw God. What was that? They saw God. Well, not really. Under his feet, there was something like lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. They don't, they don't even know what they're looking at. God is taking them in. He's eating with them. Does this sound uh, familiar at all? Thousands of years later, the Savior will take some Jewish men up into a room on Passover, and they know the story of the exodus, And what are the words Jesus says? This cup is the blood of the new covenant. And then what do they do? They eat. It's Exodus 19 through 24 all over again, except now Jesus is saying, come and celebrate what I am going to do. And so we come with the author of Hebrews, and we say, and since we have a great priest, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. So we're draw- we're not we're not moving away from the mountain. Now we're drawing near to Him, with the full assurance that faith brings. Having this is Hebrews twelve verse twenty one. Having our hearts sprinkled, hmm? having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Same language. So there's Exodus nineteen. There's Exodus twenty four. The law is given to show what God delights in. Now, New Testament. And honestly, how do you, how do you, how do you even do this in the, in the closing minutes of uh, what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament law? I like 20 lectures on this topic, and it's complicated, but I want to move you away from thinking the law is harsh or bad or unfair The Christian who follows God has a God who is thundering from a mountain. And let me just show you three places in the New Testament that I think will help you. The first one is Matthew chapter 5. Okay, Jesus is being uh, accused of not teaching the law. And so here comes the gospel of Matthew. Now, think of this. This is big time theology here. Matthew chapter 1, Jesus descends from Abraham and David. Okay, this is uh, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 2, he escapes Egypt and the boys are killed. Just like in what book? The Exodus. Chapter 3 of Matthew, he's baptized in water. He's identified as God's son. Who's identified as God's son in Exodus? Israel. Moses, then chapter 4, Jesus is tempted. I should never wear an Apple Watch. It's recording that I've fallen. (laughs) My goodness. Chapter four, Jesus is in the wilderness. How many days? 40 days. How many days did Moses go up on the mountain for? 40. Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and overcoming in ways the Israelites did not. In the 40 days, Moses was gone. So, chapter one through chapter four, Jesus is living off the Exodus. And then in chapter five, what does he do? He goes up on a mountain and gives the law. The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mountain. Do you do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? I have not come to abolish them to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and past earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so means a lot of things. He takes on the entire sacrificial system unto himself. He becomes our peace offering. He becomes the Passover lamb. He dies as the lamb of God. He's our sin offering. He makes atonement on our behalf and on and on. But what about just passages that refer to Exodus 19 in particular? How about Hebrews 12? Listen, if you wanted the coolest uh, one-liner of what the Christian li- life is or coolest kind of image of the Christian life, there's lots of places. Hebrews 12 should be top two. Okay, listen. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. What is he talking about? Exodus 19. That is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. We we all know what this is. This is Exodus 19. The sight of the, was so terrifying. Moses said, "I am trembling with fear." But here's the Christian. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Oh, my. Do you hear that? He looks at what happens In Exodus 19, it goes, uh, going up the mountain in Exodus 19 is death. Going up the mountain in Hebrews 12 is life because now there is a mediator who sprinkles blood on us. All the promises of yes are true in Christ. You know, I heard a pastor tell a story about his mentor, called him crying about the state of the church in the U.S., which we all do, right? And he said this to him. It seems that the people of America would be content taking a selfie with Moses. Don't they know that they can go up the mountain themselves? Why won't they just go up the mountain? Think of the access you have to God now. We're not sitting in our boots trembling in Exodus 19. God has come near to us, and we can go up to him with the full assurance of faith. Last one, 1 Peter 2 but you are a chosen people. Does this sound familiar anybody? <laughs> a royal priesthood. This is Peter, the guy who denied Jesus, Jewish Peter, now applying it to us Gentiles. The holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare his praises. So what's that? Holy priesthood, Israel's failed. We have their story. The church in Revelation 1, kingdom of priests, holy nation, The church is now the nation. This is why you get into trouble when you start putting Old Testament law with countries. The church is the holy nation. The church is the alternative community. The church is the city on a hill. Treasured possession. Now, now, Jew and Gentile together are what God looks at, the picture. He delights in. So that you may declare the praises of his name who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. That's conversion. Genesis 1, God speaks, the light comes, darkness dissipates. And for many of you, when you've come to Christ, this is how you described it I was in the dark, I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. God's purpose in all of this is to get praise for himself. Huh? The most self centered, self referential being in the universe because he can, he's God. He's doing this so that we will declare praises to him and to each other, the world. The law of the Lord is something that shows you what God delights in. Yes, you might have a million questions about it, but you can't slough it off as, I don't like it, therefore it's wrong. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The command of the Lord is radiant, giving light to the eyes. That's Psalm 19. It helps you love him. It helps you be driven to him because you know you can't follow it. It exposes you. And in the end, it brings you to Christ. The law is given to tell a redeemed community, that's the church, what God loves so that we can live as an alternative community to the world. That's the Mosaic Covenant, now fulfilled in the New Covenant. That's the story of the Bible. Let's pray. Lord, would you uh, rescue anyone here who does not know you, who comes to you uh, inauthentically just saying, I choose this and not this. I want this, but not this. I want to get this, but I don't want to do that. May they come to you and just say, I don't even know what you want from me, but I'll do it because you're God. May we all do that this week uh, as we reflect on what Jesus has done. This is my, the cup of the, the blood of the new covenant, him giving his life for us as a ransom for many. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing as we close. <laughs>